Anyway, we were talking last night a little bit about difference between uh, talks on sort of methodology and how we're doing things and uh, having talks that are on detail. And this talk is very much uh, about uh, detail. Um, but I will try and make some sort of uh, methodology, methodology applications, um, particularly uh, because it's kind of an example um, of the need, uh, even when you've you know, studied something for a long time and published stuff on it, to keep learning and to be teachable, and the fact that we uh, can learn things from people that we disagree with. And it was particularly in a Twitter conversation with an atheist that I know, uh, that I got some uh, pushback on something I was uh, saying uh, about this, this area, which made me re-look into it, and I ended up writing uh, a paper that's been published in two parts in our college journal, uh, Theophilus Journal from uh, NLA uh, University College in Norway. Okay, so this is looking at dating the fourth gospel, uh, an interdisciplinary approach, and I've often loved subjects that are interdisciplinary and go across boundaries of different uh, disciplines and where we divide things up. Uh, the interdisciplinary quest for the historical Jesus, uh, as some people have talked about. Now, the, the fourth gospel is notoriously difficult to date. Uh, J. Ramsey Michaels dates it to the second half of the first century, uh, whilst leaning towards a date after AD 70. Uh, in my book, Getting at Jesus, uh, in, published in 2019, I pegged the production of the fourth gospel to around about AD 60 to 90, uh, proposing that John had composed much of the gospel in the early 60s, and quoting a selection of scholars who placed the final publication of the gospel in the 80s or 90s of the first century. But a June 2020 exchange of tweets with uh, atheist called Edward T. Babinski convinced me to reconsider some arguments regarding the dating of the fourth gospel. Uh, these were arguments that, in good faith, I had represented in several venues myself, uh, including in Getting at Jesus. So I wrote a paper to revisit the topic. If you're going to revisit, you might as well get a publication out of it. Um, something I've learned over my career. Um, Nick Pollard, who I used to work for at the Demarest Trust, always said, you know, try and make any work you do, do as, do, do as much for you as possible. Um, so if you're going to study something, you know, publish something on it, do talks on it, do a podcast on it, do a, get as much out of what you do as possible. So I wrote this paper to revisit my thinking on the dating of the fourth gospel, and it's being published in two parts in Theophilus Journal, and part one is already out. That's an uh, open access journal as well, so you can read it online, and I, I gave the copies of the whole thing into the forum, so you should have access to it somewhere. Here I'm going to summarise my findings with a focus on the, the newer material. Uh, the 19th century German scholar F.C. Bauer uh, dated the fourth gospel from A.D. 160 to 170 in the second, late in the second century. Similarly, uh, as Daniel B. Wallace notes, uh, in 1925, Denifos saw 170, 175 as the ceiling date. In 1936, Lucy Lousy, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, uh, felt that the first publication can hardly have been affected before 135, 140. So the, 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 the kind of consensual opinion was this is like mid to late second century. Uh, 
However, by the middle of the 20th century, scholarship came to the current consensus that the fourth gospel was issued no later than, though probably towards, the end of the first century. Thank you. show you that I, I had pretty pictures for you this is another part of methodology you know putting uh, effort into making PowerPoint I tend to read my PowerPoints and some people say this is this is um, bad practice to just like have your words on the PowerPoint and things but I can't remember quotes that well I've seen speakers who can just memorize the stuff and um, particularly if I'm quoting someone I want to be able to get it accurate uh, and then I put enough to get a kind of bare bones of what I'm saying um, but I also try and put pretty pictures with things. Uh, so you've got an aesthetic dimension to the, the presentation uh, going on as well and illustrating who you're talking about and, and so on. So I know I've got pictures from the, the illustrated book of Kells here and so on. Uh, so we've got this 20th century consensus developed that it's late 1st century, the publication. Now, four lines of argument for dating the fourth gospel. One focuses on the, the Gospel's depiction of Jerusalem before its fall in the Jewish War of 66-74 AD, um, when the, the Romans destroyed the Temple in 70 AD. Here one often sees discussion of John 5.2's accurate description of the Pool of Bethesda. Another line of argument involves uh, what's called P52, Papyrus 52, a scrap of ancient papyrus which bears several verses of the fourth gospel, translated and published in 1934, dated by its translator, the classical scholar Colin Roberts, uh, to AD 125, plus or minus 25 years. A third line looks at the literary allusions to and or quotations from the fourth gospel, in other works. And a fourth line investigates the internal and or external evidence about the, the literary origins of the gospel. So, you know, who wrote it? So let's look at John 5, 2 to begin with. And starting with its reference to the Pool of Bethesda, by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Callum Miller notes that in 1903, uh, Lucy uh, claimed that the pool was a symbol of Judaism. The five porticos is an allusion to the five books of the law. It, it, it's not a real thing, it's just symbolic. Uh, the name Bethesda, mean, meaning house of mercy, was taken to be symbolic as well. It's not a real thing that's been talked about. In 1956, archaeologists found the Pool of Bethesda, <laughs> where first-century Jewish Roman historian Josephus described it, uh, just north of the Temple Mount near the Sheep Gate. And although uh, most similar pools at the time would have had four porticos, one for each wall, this pool actually turned out to be two pools with a dividing wall in the middle, and hence would have included a fifth portico, just as John says. So John gets it right. Uh, here's a photo of the, the ruins, the, the walkway on the right-hand side of the, the photo here uh, marks the division between the two pools. 
Herbert C. von Wald uh, observes that contra Lessi, the discovery of the pools, prove beyond a doubt that the description of this pool was not the creation of the evangelist, but reflected accurate and detailed knowledge of Jerusalem. Here's some uh, models uh, showing the Temple Mount in relation to the, the Pool of Bethesda. So there's the Temple on the Mount and the Fortress of Anatonia, and here's the Pool of Bethesda. Now, many scholars press this data into an argument for assigning a first century date to the fourth gospel. Typical, typical example, philosopher and apologist Norman L. Geisler's statement that John 5.2 mentions five colonnades at the Pool of Bethesda, excavations uncovered the pool, found it to be just as John described it. Since that pool did not exist in the second century, it's unlikely that any second century fraud just making up a gospel, would have had access to such detail. And so, see, therefore, it's an argument for saying this comes from a first-century source. Taking a slightly different track, theologian Bruce, Bruce Milne writes, John 5.2 refers to the Pool of Bethesda by there is, not there was. While too much ought not to be placed on this, it equally should not be dismissed. If the pool was still identifiable, when John wrote, we're looking at a date that's the late 60s, certainly prior to AD 70. So he's not just arguing for first century, he's arguing for pre-AD 70 on this basis. Now Milne's caution here is well taken, for there is a scholarly dispute that I couldn't adjudicate uh, about whether to understand the Greek tense in John 5.2 as a historical present or not. On the other hand, whilst Geisler uses the data just for a first century, Milne pushes it to this late 60s date, uh, and that is inferred from the fact that the Romans laid waste to Jerusalem in AD 70. And that's why Geisler states that the pool didn't exist in the second century. Right? Well, Josephus, after all, wrote that after the conquest of Jerusalem, the Roman soldiers received orders that, quote, they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest eminency. Uh, there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Right? The place was destroyed. However, as Bibinski argues, pointed out to me, Josephus's statement must be interpreted as hyperbole in light of other historical sources which testify, for example, that the Pool of Bethesda continued to be visible in Jerusalem into the 4th century AD. Archaeologist Shimon Gibson, quote from him here, uh, saying the pools referred to in 3rd and 4th century sources, uh, got the testimony of, of Oregon in his commentary on John, the original four porticos, according to Oricon, running around the edges of the twin pool, with another across the middle, was still vis visible to visitors in his day, which was about 231 AD, writing. This information was repeated by Cyril of Jerusalem before 348 in his homily on the cripple of the pool. Uh, the language of Eusebius suggests that in his day, before 331, the actual porticos were already in ruins. He says a bathing pool in Jerusalem, which is called the, the Protobaki, uh, and formerly had five porticos. 
So it's unclear from the description of the Bordeaux Pilgrim in 333 whether the porticos are still visible. What's certain is that both pools were still in use and gathering water. According to Echirus 441, the northern pool was filled with rainwater, the southern pool was drained and stained with a reddish colour. Um, so we've got multiple historical sources saying, um, you know, this was still visible, still in use, still even had porticos uh, many centuries after uh, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, now, interesting to note, of course, Lausi missed these historical sources when arguing against the historicity of John 5.2. This is just you know, made up. They've got all these literary sources. And this omission wasn't corrected by later scholars who argued against Lausi from the archaeological discovery. Consequently, this inference from the fourth gospel's description of the pool uh, to the conclusion that it must, on that account, have been written by someone with direct or indirect local knowledge of Jerusalem from the first century or prior to AD 70. That is just wrong. Now, following the widespread use of this argument, I stated in Getting at Jesus that John 5.2, quote, displays a detailed local knowledge of Jerusalem before AD 70. Mere culpa, I was wrong. I now recognise my statement as unintentionally misleading. I, I unintentionally misled the House, Mr Speaker, <laughs> and conclude that this argument uh, is unsound. But you may have noticed that John 5.2 also mentions the Sheep Gate. Astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez argues for a pre-70 date for the fourth gospel by noting John 5.2 describes the sheep gate in the present tense, even though the sheep gate was wiped out when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And they think, oh, that's a, maybe he's onto something here, because we do know that the temple was destroyed, even though the pool of Bethesda we now know it wasn't. Jack Feingen. Uh, notes that there, there was in fact a sheep gate which is mentioned by Nehemiah. According to his references, that was probably in the north city wall on the north side of the temple. Um, between uh, a certain gate and the Tower of the Hundred, the Tower of Hananel, uh, the later probably predecessors of the Antonia Fortress that I showed you that picture of on the northwest of the Temple Mount. The fact that this gate was uh, built by Elishib, the high priest, and his brethren, the priests, Nehemiah 3.1, confirms its close association with the temple area, and it may have been the same as what's called the Tadi Gate, mentioned in the Midoth, that is the, the Book of Measurement in the Jewish Mishnah, as the portal on the north side of the temple area. Now, this Tadi Gate was apparently located in the northern retaining wall of the pre-Herodian Temple Mount, with tunnel leading up into the temple complex. There was this rooms and co corridors and things underneath the temples for the, where the priests lived and so on. Archaeologist Dan Bahat notes that there is a, a theory concerning cistern number one. Later on, um, you know, uh, surveys were done in the 19th century and uh, some of these corridors were later on in history converted into water systems and so on under the Temple Mount. Um, system what, number one, uh, w um, surveyed by uh, Charles Wilson uh, in the 19th century, was the tunnel which led from the Temple compound directly out of the Temple Mount to the north to this gate. Uh, but then this gate in the retaining wall uh, 
was subsumed by Herod's renovations to the north of the temple when he extended the temple platform and functionally replaced by the fourth gospel's sheep gate. The question is, what architectural form did the Herodian sheep gate take? Did it stay in the retaining wall or did it shift, as some people think, to the, the, the colonnade wall around the top of the Temple Mount, as it were. While it was presumably somewhere in between the Anatonia Fortress and the Israel Pool on the other corner of the north of the Temple, Bahat laments that its exact location is not known. Today, very little can be seen of the northern wall of the Temple, although the remains of the Herodian northern retaining wall are still preserved below ground. But you're not allowed to dig there. Access to the Temple Mount is highly restricted, uh, and you can imagine the political tensions uh, that surround that issue. Uh, even today, the cisterns under the Temple Mount are inaccessible because of Muslim religious and political sensitivities. And this ignorance, unfortunately, hampers any firm conclusion about the Sheep Gate's fate in the first century. So it's a thin reed to hang an argument on. Uh, Lean and Kathleen Rittmeyer, who are sort of archaeological uh, um, architects, have done a lot of work on this. I've read a, a, several of their books on this. Postulate that the Herodian Sheep Gate was located in the portico wall on the northern summit of the Herodian Temple Mount. So here's the, the portico wall around the top of the mountain, the fortress here, and uh, this portico wall. And they think that the Sheep Gate was basically here like leading directly onto the platform. There would, in this case, have been some sort of ramp or staircase leading up to the sheep gate from outside. So um, if you're um, outside the back of the, the temple, there's the fortress here. See, you've got the, the retaining wall here. And they, they've got, a in this model, they've got a sort of ramp going up to the gate that's on the top of the, the temple mound. Given this hypothesis, this reconstruction, the sheep gate probably was obliterated by the Romans in AD 70. They attacked from the north, put siege ramps up against the fortress. They destroyed these porticos uh, and then went on to the temple. However, when Herod extended the Temple Mount north, might not the builders have simply extended the passage from the now defunct Taddy Gate to the new retaining wall ending in what then in the first century had become known as the Sheep Gate because of that association with the Old Testament usage and the priests and, and, and so on. Michael Lusting notes that Herod extended existing temple paths and passageways like those to the Holder Gates to pass through his extensions to the exterior. This was likely also required for those of the Taddy Gate. He did it with other gates just extending the passages into the retaining wall access, why not with the one on the north? Creating such a tunnel extension would preserve the existing social function of the gate as being for the use of the priests, not you know, the, the gates, big gates in and out on the south side of the temple for access. It would also save the space taken up by the tunnel from having to be filled in by hardcore, which you've got a cart there, and save building a ramp or stairs up to the temple platform. So there are a number of kind of positives to, oh, let's just extend that tunnel. 
In which case, on this model, see, the sheep gate is here, in the retaining wall, not in the wall at the top. And you don't have to have steps or a thing up here and, and so on. So that's a, an alternative reconstruction on this different model of where the sheep gate would be. Now, the Temple Mount was vulnerable to attack from the higher ground to the north, hence the Antonia Fortress. <coughs> Uh, and a gate leading onto the temple platform seems like more of a vulnerability than a gate in the retaining wall. Storming a small gate under fire and then fighting up a long, narrow underground tunnel against determined opposition is a poor military prospect. So a gate in the northern retaining wall could have been ignored by the Romans, or they could have tried and failed, and it's just not mentioned. Um, as too in easily defendable a choke point when you're attacking. Uh, indeed, the Jews could easily have filled in part of the tunnel to block access. They, after all, they built an additional defensive wall within the Anatonia fortress when the Romans were digging through the wall. The Jews were building a, a wall inside the wall. Um, so if they can do that, they can fill in a long tunnel with you know, a wall or some rubble. Um, Charles Warren reported that the northern end of System 1 here, System 1 under the temple, uh, was closed with a rough stone wall. And Rittmeyer notes that both systems one and three, that the northern parts of both of these passages are blocked by similar looking walls that made it impossible for Warren to investigate their relation to the northern wall of the raised platform. So if there was a gate onto the temple platform near the Anatonia, Titus would likely have been tempted to raise uh, a siege bank against it so that battering rams could be brought to, get to bear on that weak point, um, as he did against the massive stonework of the fortress. You know, if he's going to do it against the fortress, a, a, a gate is much more tempting a military target, right? He didn't. Even assuming John 5.2 isn't using a historical precedent, the fact that the retaining walls of the Temple Mount were deliberately left lying in ruins means that if the Sheep Gate was in the retaining wall, then a present tense reference to the Sheep Gate might well have been accurate well after AD 70. Indeed, even if the door or doors of the gate had been destroyed, reference to the Sheep Gate wouldn't have been misleading. Um, in the English city of Southampton, where I live, the gatehouse of the 12th century town walls still exists on above Bar Street. Now, the original gates are no longer part of this structure, but it is nevertheless universally known as Bargate. Turning from John 5.2, which I don't think gives us grounds for an argument for pre-70 uh, arguments, look at, sort of on the other bookend, P52. Uh, this scrap of ancient papyrus, uh, which contains a few verses from the fourth gospel, uh, dated, as I said, by Colin Roberts to about 125 AD. Now, Wilson Poroski uh, reports that most scholars argue for a date no later than 125 AD, um, and that, uh, since it was found in Egypt, this scrap, uh, dates uh, accordingly, is evidence that the Gospel of John, uh, which is generally thought to have been composed somewhere in Asia, Asia Minor, must have been from some time earlier than 125 AD, because it's got to get there via copying and, and so on. 
Uh, so, you know, Keener says well, sceptical scholars once dated John in the late second century, and that kind of all changes with the discovery of P52. The, the autograph of John must have been written before the close of the first century. Uh, Comfort and, and Barrett conclude on this basis. But Babinski brought to my attention several scholars who now, somewhat recently, sought to push the dating envelope of P52 somewhat. Indeed, he pushed that envelope in both directions, interestingly. Someone called Godfrey uh, lists a bunch of paleographers who date it anywhere from 80 to 175 AD. Now, that dating envelope still tells against the second century dates promulgated by scholars like Bauer and Delafosse. But um, Schmidt argues for a date around 170, plus or minus. Brent Nobry uh, contends for a date range uh, in the late second and even early third century. But most New Testament scholars continue to favor the earlier dating of P52. Uh, it's appealed to some, but not most, uh, says, says Comfort. Now, the date for P50 years I used in uh, getting at Jesus reflects that scholarly consensus, but that consensus, it's fair to say, isn't monolithic by any means, with several favouring a broader range of dates. So, while some of those dates are earlier, some of them are later, and Stephen Carson, writing about this issue, uh, just suggests that P52 should be dated to the mid-second century, give or take half a century. <laughs> it's like, just take an average. Well, if we follow Carson in averaging the proposed dates, the most we could say about the Fourth Gospel on that basis of P52 would be that it was written by the middle of the second century. Now, that would still be within two generations of the crucifixion. And the editorial voice that endorses the eyewitness statement of the Fourth Gospel primary witness to Jesus. It would then be comparable to, or better than, ancient historical sources like Suetonius, Josephus, Plutarch, with an average publication, publication gap, if you like, between the events that are being talked about and the, the literary description being published of about 100 years. So in ancient historical terms, that's pretty good, right? Uh, it would still be the case that one couldn't doubt the testimony of the fourth gospel purely on grounds of its temporal distance from the life of Jesus without severely curtailing the practice of ancient history. And I've put up a graph here of a range of ancient historical sources um, talking about the gap and the average lapsed gap between the source and the, the events that they're talking about and so on. Uh, so you can see that the, the New Testament on this basis, would, uh, the Gospel of John on this basis would still you know, stand up pretty well. On the other hand, the majority's opinion, scholars, still dates P52 to the early 2nd century, which suggests a 1st century date for the 4th Gospel, making it more comparable by this metric to historians like Tacitus and Suetonius. Daniel Wallace comments that although Nobry recently argued that it's P52 is, is irrelevant for the dating of, of John, he based his views on what's possible but not what's, what's probable. The likelihood that this fragment really belongs to the first half of the second century and most likely to the first quarter of the second century gives parameters to when John could have been written. Uh, Peter M. Head talking about this says that some opinions are worth a lot more than others. 
You don't just take a, an average of all opinions. You know. Of course, the opinions of general New Testament scholars come on commenting on John are pretty irrelevant. Um, but the opinion of some scholars who've handled and examined hundreds of manuscripts remains important. In this connection, Eric Turner's acquiescence to Robert's dating and Robert's own attention to uh, comparable literature and so on retains some force, especially since Nobry has, in his own admission, not found a more recently published text from a later period that is closer to P52 than the comparisons that these other scholars uh, appeal to. So Ulrich Vilken's, Vilken uh, indicates that P52 could have been contemporary with manuscripts in the Apollonius archives dated to about 120 AD, uh, the Bremer papyri. Uh, this is a significant observation in as much as Vilkin had just completed a publication of the Bremer papyri when he made this observation about P52. He was drawing on his keen observation of several manuscripts dated to that era, basically. Um, so he knows where of which he speaks more. Uh, Edward Andrews also criticises Nobry for attempting to find a couple of letter forms of later dates, maybe the fading, diminishing part of a timeline of the, the evolution of letter forms over time, that have similar features to letters in P52, so as to date 50, 52 to a later range of dates. But he notes, that, again, that Nobry is willing to accept Robert's conclusion uh, with some confidence that the first half of the second century as the period in which it was most probably written. Um, now, another papyrus called the, the Egerton papyrus, pictured here, Egerton II, is important in this context because the Egerton papyrus II fragments have so many parallel expressions to those found in John's Gospel that it strongly suggests that whoever wrote P. Egerton II was using John's writing as a source. Um, Comfort talks about Schmidt, who redates P P52 to circa 200, based on the fact that its handwriting parallels that of the Egerton Gospel, which is now thought by some to date closer to 200. Based on the presence in that manuscript of a specific way of writing, paleographic feature, of a, a hooked form of apostrophe between two consonants. This is the kind of detail papyrologists have to get into which appear in a newly published portion of the Egerton Gospel. Um, but this, this detail, Andrew argues, uh, for changing the dating of P52 on this basis of the comparison with, with Egerton, the problem here is that the, the hooked apostrophe uh, between the two consonants, the scholars seeking a date change misunderstand the argument of English papyrist uh, Eric Turner on talking about Egerton relating to the hooked apostrophe. Turner said that this form of right, the apostrophe became a practice in the third century so that scholars redating P. Egerton, P52, others based on this hooked apostrophe and the problem being that Turner did not say that there are no cases of this form of the apostrophe in the second century. In fact, he, he cited two examples, and there are other examples. So it was developing in the second century and became a common practice in the third century. 
you know, it, 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 there's a gradual evolution and, and something, ways of writing become more popular, you kind of schools of calligraphy or, or whatever, as it were, spreading. It doesn't just suddenly all change everywhere at the same moment. We all make a secret of it. Let's start writing the apostrophe different, guys. Go! You know. <laughs> um, so they've kind of over-interpreted this analysis of this form of the apostrophe that they then base, partially base, this redating uh, by comparison to Egerton of P52 upon. Um, so basically that, that, that doesn't work and you can you know, quote a number of scholars on this, like Philip Comfort and Stanley Porter, um, arguing um, in this way and talking about P52 still pretty securely being dated uh, to the traditional uh, date and talking about comparisons with other bits of literature, but I won't, I won't go into the details here, and you can read them at your leisure. So P52 can safely be dated to 100 to 125, belongs to the beginning of the second century. Now the fourth gospel, of course, mentions the disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned back against Jesus at the supper. The writer is not explicitly named in the gospel. That's as explicit as it gets. It identifies him as the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. So whoever this disciple was, they were an eyewitness. Well, wouldn't that mean he'd been like in his 90s at the end of the first century? Isn't that implausible? Keener points out that typical disciples would, of Jesus would have been in their teens, making 80s more likely than 90s. And moreover, we know of other ancient thinkers in their 80s and 90s with sharp memories and wit, he says. Like Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> if, we, if we suppose that the beloved disciple, whoever they were, was, say, 18, being generous here, when Jesus died in April of AD 33, that's why I'm going to plug the, the crucifixion, see Colin Humphrey's book, he'd have become 83 by April of AD 98, which was soon after the Ro Roman Emperor Trajan began his reign. Uh, testimony from the beloved disciple in AD 98 about Jesus' crucifixion in AD 33 would be comparable to the testimony given by Mary Ellen Ford in 2018 about the events of the day that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated at the hotel where she worked as a cook 50 years before in 1968. 50 years, 55 years, you know. That's the kind of relationship we're talking about. Besides, many scholars conjecture that the testimony of or used by the beloved disciple was originally recorded, at least in part, before the fall of Jerusalem, perhaps in the 60s. Not on the basis of John 5, 2 and so on, but even folks in like the Liberal Jesus Seminar talk about maybe there's like a miracle source that's in involved in, in John's Gospel and so on. I think it's simple hypothesis just to say, yeah, and that source is John. <laughs> right. that's, that's by Occam's razor um, testimony from the beloved disciple in AD 63 about Jesus' crucifixion would be comparable to my testimony today about events in 1992 that was when I finished my A-levels I can remember stuff from when I finished my A-levels the title according to John is attached to every manuscript of the fourth gospel that has a title attached and those titled manuscripts are from the end of the 2nd century, if not earlier. 
Barnett mentions the Muratonian fragment dated 180 200 states the fourth book of the gospel is that of John one of the disciples Martin and Wright who are some uh, Catholic theologians say um, any alternative theory about the origins of the fourth gospel requires an explanation as to why this gospel would have been wrongly assigned with John the Apostle at such an early date and by people who claim to have known him personally people like Polycarp making <coughs> this claim who knew John <laughs> Blomberg argues that a good case can be made that the fourth gospel was written by John the one Jesus loved, brother of James, son of Zebedee just as the church tradition, Polycarp, etc., suggests. That the same tradition places John in and around Ephesus, ministering to the churches of Asia Minor, until his death as an elderly man at roughly the end of the first century. At some time after the death of the Emperor Domitian, John was released from exile in Patmos, whereupon he returned to Ephesus, um, and then several years later, around about 100 AD, John died. So there's a window of opportunity there for his return from exile before his death for John to have published the gospel while he was resident at Ephesus in Asia as Irenaeus reports in Against Heresies. We might even speculate it was John's exile that accounts for the gap between the, say, a draft of the gospel, which could have been circulated locally in and around Ephesus with his, John's disciples and churches and so on, and its final redaction hypothesized by some scholars. Though, of course, it remains possible that the Gospel according to John was published before his exile. Um, Blomberg notes that while it's true that the external evidence focuses primarily on John's age and location of ministry, rather than explicitly tying the authorship of the Gospel to that late date, the subsequent conviction of the Church that became the traditional position should probably be accepted dating the fourth gospel either to the 80s or the 90s. Uh, Dongle cautiously argues like 80 to 100, um, thinking it is probably John, son of Zebedee, um, and that his disciples edited and published the work, he says, sometime after his death. But it seems to me that the testimony of Ignatius should be given the benefit of the doubt here, with the result that the publication of the fourth gospel came before the end of the apostle's life. So consequently, and allowing time for the Johnine epistles to post-date the fourth gospel, as most commentators seem to think, I would suggest that John's gospel was probably published in its extant form, may have had previous editions and so on, in its extant form under the Emperor Nerva in AD 96 to 98. This dating is cautious and mainstream. A wide variety of scholars see earlier sources behind or within the Gospel, but I think you just say, yeah, John. Uh, Stanley Porter says virtually all scholars agree that John's Gospel was the last written at the latest around AD 90. Keener, most scholars maintain a date in the 90s, Wright and Bird, there's no strong evidence against a traditional date near the end of the century, either towards the end of Domitian's reign, 8196, or at the beginning of Trajan's, 9817. So I'm just pegging straight between, between those. So, in conclusion, John 5.2's description of the Pool of Bethesda and of the Sheepgate does not 
provide grounds for thinking that the fourth gospel was published in the first century stroke before AD 70. It doesn't provide grounds for saying that. Evidence pointing to a first century date for the fourth gospel is provided by P52. That does give, I think, a, a fairly reliable bookend to how late you can date the gospel. <clears throat> I think the main author stroke testimonial source of the fourth gospel whoever they were, an eyewitness, was probably John the Apostle. I think the beloved disciple may, may have initially written, perhaps with the help of a scribe, some stuff in the early 60s. Notes for teaching material or local circulation or whatever. May have. John's testimony was subsequently edited, I think probably with his blessing, by his own disciples whilst he was still alive, probably therefore published in its extant form in Ephesus under the Emperor Nerva, so AD 96 to 98. The fourth gospel's accurate description of the pool of Bethesda and the Sheep Gate is evidence that indicates at least the reliability of the fourth gospel's eyewitness first century testimony to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And as I showed with the comparison charts, in terms of ancient historiography, that's pretty darn good. And this is the latest gospel in the New Testament. Um, so those are my uh, theoretical conclusions, but, but as I was saying, practically, I was in conversation with an atheist. I made some arguments that I've seen used widespread in the literature. I got some pushback on him. I didn't dig my heels in. I went, oh, that's interesting. Let me check that. Oh, let me do some research around this. Um, let's try and make this research do as much work for me as possible whilst I'm at it. I might as well write a paper and do a talk, and do a podcast and, and, and what have you. But forced back to the data, to, to reassess it and say, okay, I think I was wrong on something. Tell people, I think I was wrong on something and, and changed my mind because of that. And that in itself is a kind of witness of what, what rhetoricians would, would call good ethos, right? Ad admitting you got something wrong, showing that you're willing to reevaluate what you think on the basis of new information and so on. Um, yes, gosh, it shows I'm fallible. Who would have thought, right? Um, but uh, it shows I, I'm not just like committed to my opinions on the basis of kind of blind faith for, for its own sake, etc. Um, so there is something about the ethos of our uh, apologetic methodology as we engage with people, not having to be defensive, not having to dig our heels into the ground, being willing to, to rethink things. Um, but not just lying down and saying, oh gosh, you've mentioned there are some scholars who date P52 to the 3rd century, so I, I can't claim that John you know, must have been written by the end of the 1st century. Oh dear, well I better, I better start claiming that. No, you know, go back to the sources, read around the debate, um, you know, do, as all of us can. You know, I can I, I'm, I'm a philosopher by training. I've published some stuff in New Testament studies, I've uh, written some books, I've published some papers, even some peer-reviewed stuff. But, you know, I'm not 
uh, an academic, like, professor, expert kind of level on these kind of things. And I have to remember that and remain teachable. And I, and I guess even the academic professors would say, um, ideally, they need to do that as well. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, let that be. Let me give you my example of I am fallible and let us all remember this. Uh, and, and, and being willing to be to go to the length of being vulnerable enough to kind of show that publicly when we're, when we're doing stuff. And I think that is actually something that rebounds to our favour in, in terms of uh, our trustability uh, as sources of information that people are looking to, to, to help them sort through these issues. Um, because they didn't think I was infallible, you know, even before I noticed that I'd made a mistake. Uh, and so it probably increases their trust in me, actually. If I say, oh, mea culpa, yeah, thank you. A quick uh, addendum uh, to that talk. I feel I should correct a small mistake that I noticed on listening back to it, uh, that towards the end there, I mentioned giving the benefit of the doubt to the testimony of Ignatius, uh, when what I should have said, of course, uh, was trusting the testimony of the only recently mentioned Irenaeus. 